Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. And uh, I failed phys ed and English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark horse here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. All right, cool. Welcome, everybody. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Um, hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney, former competitive bodybuilder, uh, journalist, and uh, strength training enthusiast. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, uh, founder of LifterHope.org, and just all-around nice guy and athlete. Um, and today with us, we got Gray Cook. Um, we had Gray on a little bit ago. I just want to want to bring Gray on again. He's got some new stuff going on. Gray, thanks for doing this. Thank you. We're going to jump right into it. Um, you got the new book out. Um, pretty much, if I if I'm right here, it's kind of uh, you put the FMS out, and now. After years of kind of putting this into use, the new book is kind of uh, just stories and case studies and this and that of, of everybody putting the rubber to the road. Am I correct? It is, and, and basically it's it's the textbook. It's uh, the movie screen has been out for more than ten years now. A lot of a lot of professional usage, a lot of prof- professional commentary. But we're actually finding an interest to teach this in the the, the collegiate settings and grad school, undergrad. And people looking for more of a structured, uh, where did this come from? Why do we do it this way? And so we wrote this new book almost in a textbook format with a index and, and glossary and everything so it could actually become part of a curriculum or, or your postgraduate study. Yes, sir. And, I mean, I think what people don't understand is across the industry, I mean, your system is being used by kind of the best in the field to do everything from, you know, NFL to, you know, combines, baseball, Reebok, Titleist, blah, 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 blah. I mean, across the board. And, uh, I mean, and I, I, I think one of the, the reasons, I think one of the reasons it makes it there to, you know, from, from Titleist to the NFL to a, a Navy SEAL team to high school is because, I'm not real adamant about the method you use to make people move better. You'll you'll quickly know if you're using the right methods for mobility and stability and, and strength acquisition. The the thing is, we all need to be singing out of the same songbook when it comes to uh, standard operating procedure. How do we identify the problem? So the one thing that I think that was really a struggle for me until I could put this together in the book was instead of making a, a conditioning or training book about methods, let's make it about principles because we know there's about, you know, a thousand different methods to achieve better mobility, stability, functional movement, athletic movement. So, you know, I didn't try to just shop. There's not one way to train. We know that. But there should be a standard operating procedure in the way we set our baselines. So, Well, I mean, I think I think that's the resounding theme across the board. I mean, if you talk to coaches, this and that, I mean, some of them hate to say it, but 90% of us are doing the same way, same thing, and we're all based on the same foundation. It's just finding that great core, and, and everybody has their little tweak to it. And I mean, I think that's kind of what you're doing with the new book and um, laying it out there in a usable fashion. And like you said, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's as far as, I mean, postgraduate school textbook type reading. And um, 
it's it's how you're able to take this and put it on put it on the street and uh, put it to use. With this, you got the new site, correct? You want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, I, I sort of stole the idea from a really good book called Brain Rules, which are 12 rules that explain how our brain works the way it does. It's for anybody who's in teaching or coaching or instruction. Uh, if you want to know what your message sounds like to the people sitting before you, understand their brains and you'll understand better. So this guy wrote this book called Brain Rules, and, uh, of course, the book is out there. But then he went and did this website because he said, you know, what I put in the pages of this book are, are, are pretty timeless. They're just rules about the brain. But what we learn is completely dynamic. We're finding out new stuff every day. So I don't feel like doing a second, third, twelfth edition of a book. Any new information we know per chapter, we're going to throw on this website so that the edition of my book that you have is going to be pretty much consistent and timeless because the principles in the book in the right direction and the website keeps you current on the new information. So I sort of I direct copy from that wonderful book and said, you know, at the end of each chapter, my publisher and I direct you to a website that doesn't give away the book. It summarizes the takeaway for you. Gotcha. And, I mean, from talking to you, it sounds like this is going to be loaded, not just not just text-based website, but you're going in there with a lot of multimedia stuff, videos, you know, sound, this and that, correct? It is. We've got uh, a couple of good presentations already by some of the co-authors, and uh, as, as better anecdotes, stories, all kinds of things come up, um, as, as more of the books go out and people want to chime in, uh, anything that we think enhances your learning experience or your ability to take it to a different population, that's what that website's for. So, What is the website again? Uh, it's movementbook.com. Okay, and they can get the book and, and see the website all in one place, correct? Sure can. Uh, I'm going to do some summaries of it for you, but basically if you just indicate anytime something's new, let me know. Anytime we put something new up there, uh, we're we're going to make that available to you and just give you a little alert or something like that. Got some good stuff coming to it, and it's all, you know, it's it's all basically just supporting that foundation. I find that a lot of people take a movement screen workshop, and they're sitting there, and they're very much in agreement, but then when it comes time for them to take it back to ground zero and shop it in their gym or, or at their camp or wherever they work, it's sort of hard for them. Um, and I said, don't don't feel like you got to champion this message. Just get out of the trenches, screen a few people, see what it reveals to you. Talk about that. Don't try to tell my stories because they're, they're, you know, my experience. Go ahead and just do some screens. You know, one day at the rifle range tells you exactly what you know and don't know about shooting. So I tell people, before you go out and try to champion this philosophy, go ahead and try to break it. Just do some screens, see what you learn about your population and your stories and your sales pitches and your coaching pearls will come after that. So, And that's kind of what I was going to go to next is uh, um, how does the book and then, then your seminars and certification and whatnot, they, they feed well into one another? I mean, Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think that uh, I had to not just think about the student who's coming along in the new paradigm learning this stuff early. How about the, the person who becomes a coach after years of being an athlete or the uh, – you know, the, the the person who's already been out there doing it and they're trying to stay current, we we wanted the book to, to seem a little bit like a textbook, but not so much like a textbook that you couldn't put it to really effective use. So the, the book is the reference with all the research. If you want to take it back 
and say this is exactly why they do it this way. Everybody who wants to know about the research, it's all in the book. The workshop is simply uh, getting good with the skill set of movement screening. And I'll be the first person to tell you, movement screening isn't even close to the only thing we do when we're sizing up an athlete or trying to train somebody. It just happens to be the starting point. Believe it or not, the movement screen doesn't tell me a lot about your performance. Your performance tells me a lot about your performance. Your skill tells me a lot about your skill. The movement screen simply tells me uh, how durable you're probably going to be and how adaptable you are to new training platforms. We find some amazing athletes, but if you change up their training platform, they break a wheel really quickly. And that's because they move really well doing what they do. They just can't handle anything new. And all we're saying with the movement screen is when it's time to change the way somebody moves or pick them up a notch or somebody's been off training for a while, you want to recon their movement patterns before you ever sort of start shopping their performance measures. It's just a simple, it's a tier system. And so we, we set the book up to give you your, your scientific references. We set the workshop up to give you your, your practical knowledge and just let's get on through and do a screen. It's just like taking blood pressure. It's a simple test. What you do with it from there actually depends a lot on the population you work with and uh, your training background. Um, but it's still the, you know, the standard operating procedure that, that doesn't really change the way you train. It just may give you some insight as to I'm not going heavy with this person now or I'm staying away from squatting patterns with this guy. I'm going to hammer the deadlift. I'm going to hammer you know, some leg strength, but I'm going to stay away from the squatting pattern because no good can come of it. He's just, you know, he needs to make it a better pattern before he needs to load that pattern. Gotcha. And I mean, so pretty much, I think we've all seen it at seminars and workshops here. Um, you get people come in, you get them for one, two, three days, whatever it is. They leave fired up and a week later, they're like, where do I go with this? So now they got the book, they got the website to come back and always have reference material new stuff coming, things to build from. Um, with, with the new book and website, you know, coexisting with the, with the, with the workshops. Um, where, where to go from there? Is that, is that? No, pretty much what I'm getting at is they kind of feed into one another. I mean, I've seen it, you know, there's a reason we started putting out a DVD from, with, to coexist with our workshops and, and certifications and whatnot. You know, people leave and they're like, okay, great info, and they're fired up for a week, and they're just like, where do I go? You know, you've got this book out there now, and now they feed feed with one another. Um, they do. They, they, they very much do. And a lot of times we say a lot more than people hear in a workshop because exactly. you've got to cram a lot into a day and a half. And, and you know, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Some people aren't ready to learn or uptake information at the same rate. So what we find out is, I've, got, I've had people that take the movement screen workshop two or three times. And I'm like, you know, you, you heard all you could hear at the time. Practicing what you know and then studying a little more gives you an opportunity. So a lot of people will read the book and said, man, you've never said that before. And I'll take them back and show them the slide presentation they saw <laughs> two years ago. And it's right there. But yeah. you weren't ready to hear it. You didn't have the experience. So, so uh, you know, I think the message is good. People learn at different times and different rates. So the, the book is a a resource they can keep going back to um, anytime they see a curveball or anytime there's a training question. Let's go back to our principles. Am I, am I expecting one thing without achieving another? So, Yeah. Are you gonna, is it going to be, um, for, for your people that take the workshop, 
with the website and everything, a lot of interactivity where they can come on as well, give you, you know, the stories, case studies, ask questions, this, that. Um, Absolutely. Gonna... And our, web, our website is set up to sort of separate those people who've already been through a workshop and, and, you know, have some movement screening background from those who are asking entry-level questions. Now, entry-level people can find out all they need to know, but our forums that are set up and our question and answers that are set up for those people out in the trenches actually doing this, that's a whole different level of sort of uh, information because we find we get, we get the, the person who just heard of it yesterday ask a question and the person who's been basically working with us for years ask a question. Those are two completely different formats, and believe it or not, we're setting up our website to, to take you right to the level of information you need. So our, our trainers who've been with the system a while are, are looking at a completely different forum and platform than those entry-level questions. As far as the workshops, they can find those on the site as well? Yeah, believe it or not, uh, you can come right to our site, functionalmovement.com, or you can just find them on the Movement Book website. It's usually a day-and-a-half seminar. We have a compressed program. We've done it many colleges and universities to get people in and out in a day. The only difference is we offer you just a little bit more information on corrective strategy. The, the movement screen is the same no matter where you learn it or how you learn it. We're even entertaining uh, the possibility of creating a home uh, study workshop uh, that you can basically take yourself through this education. We encourage you to uh, seek out a mentor in your area just to double-check the, the practical aspects of what you're doing, but we realize that not everybody can jump on a plane and take a weekend workshop, but that's no reason not to, not to you know, try to um, move with the, the way the new paradigm is pointing. So, Perfect. Um, I want to go ahead and hit that music, Charles. Let's go to the topic. of the day, you know, I got to talking to Gray when this book came out, and it just sparked some interest in both of us, and I'd love to hear Lonnie's take on this. We started talking about um, knowing your responsibilities and your limitations. Um, me and Gray started talking about it as far as FMS and, and the, the functional movement, but I'd love to hear Lonnie, your take on it as well. Pretty much kind of what it is is, um, you know, it's just that knowing. All of us like to think we're, we're real good, <laughs> but uh you know, there's times when we got to source out and we got to refer out and this and that. And uh, just just that. Um, Greg, I'd like to hear your, your your take on that. What are the limitations? When do you well, know when to source out? Well, you know, it, I'll just start off by telling you as a physical therapist, when, when I do a musculoskeletal examination and I see a bunch of stuff that looks – like systemic disease. I'm like, <laughs> the guy's breathing heavy, his skin is gray, his blood pressure's up. You know, this guy's got cancer. He doesn't have, he doesn't have low back pain. He's got bone cancer. Um, I can't help you anymore. My, my ultrasound won't help you. We got, we, none of my tests say that I own the solution to your problem. So I absolutely have no problem right there 
using my physical therapy differential diagnosis skills to direct you to somebody who can basically help explain and direct you farther. Now, um, I have to concede that, that I'm not the person who's going to fix that, and I, I got no problem. My, my specialty uh, doesn't cover that. It simply stops at me recognizing what I can't do. Likewise, um, if I'm a, a strength coach and I have an athlete with nagging back pain, two days a week we can't train you because of your back pain, at some point I need to say it's okay uh, to refer out. The reason I think a lot of coaches have had a bad experience referring out is you, you refer your athlete out to get a, a solution or an answer to what's going on and interfering with their training. And you get some namby-pamby person saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be lifting that heavy, or now they're stepping on your toes. Or, you know, you send your track athlete out, and the doctor goes, well, I don't really think running is good for your knees anyway. That's not what you're, 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 you want to hear. So medical professionals, when they have had a legitimate referral, have very often dropped the ball, in the, in the, and that fumble has caused a lot of strength coaches, trainers, weightlifting coaches to try to take uh, methods into their own hands and, and try to, you know, work out some soft tissue. And, hey, I got a few stretches I saw on the Internet that might help. But, you know, if, if I were trying back therapy on the guy with bone cancer, I'd just be wasting valuable time. And if, if stretches and foam rolls aren't making the athletes comfortable enough to train, there's a good – there's a good chance that the stretch and the foam roll might just be wasting valuable time. I totally agree that medical professionals need to get efficient. And I, I've always trained my young therapist and rehabilitation experts. I'm like, you're a referee. Make the call. Screw the instant replay. You're on the field. The spotlight's on you. Make the call. Is it a ligamentous sprain? Is it a muscular strain? Do you think this guy's got a fracture? Do we need an x-ray? Make the friggin' call or give it to somebody who can. So, you know, the delays that strength coaches have experienced should be no more, and the entire movement screen system and methodology shows strength coaches exactly what a good musculoskeletal exam should start with, and it also shows rehab people the kind of preventative screening process that good strength coaches should go through. So basically... I showed exercise people the rehab playbook, and I showed rehab people the exercise playbook. And I'm like, if, if you're working, if you're referring to somebody who's dropping the ball, you'll know it pretty quick. So there's no reason to try to, you know, practice outside of your, your specialty or, or do something because there's something that has happened recently with the, with the self-trained athlete, with the uh, – person who's seeking fitness knowledge, the, the word fitness issue has replaced health problems. When your friggin' low back hurts you three days of the week, that's not a fitness issue. <laughs> that's a health problem. And you've got you've to basically do, do the responsible thing and get that managed and get your butt back training as quick as possible. So a lot of clients and athletes show up on your doorstep asking to be trained and hoping a fitness uh, regime will solve a health problem. And they're asking the wrong question, and many, too many of us try to 
um, how can I say, rise to the occasion. But the, but the chance is it's a no-win situation. You're setting yourself up where if you make an appropriate referral, you're the hero. You recognize, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're wondering why your squat strength isn't going up, and I'm wondering why you're training with low back pain. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that, that any, any coach or any trainer out there uh, shows their, their weakness or, or shows that they're uninformed by making a referral. The problem is you're going to probably make a few different referrals before you find that medical professional that appreciates the way you practice and will then turn around and reciprocate by saying, you know what, I'm not a strength expert, but you are ready to train, and I know who you need to train with. And, and that's, that's my vision. Uh, you know, it's, it's been my vision a long time, and that's pretty much what the book is saying. I, I didn't want just health care people to buy the book, and I didn't just want exercise people to buy the book. It's, it's sort of represents the best way to professional network with a structured system. We all use the same language. So now we're, we're using the same information, not different semantics. That's the well, I think that's a great go to go ahead. No, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. That's, that oh, okay. has been my vision all along because I, I understand the, the strength. I'm a, you know, I'm a strength coach and I also have to be a PT and I became, I got each credential the very same year. So I've always tried to look at myself, um, through different eyes and see, you know, what profession needs to step up and which profession needs to, uh, back off or vice versa in any situation. So. Well, I mean, I think that's the the great cue you hit on was kind of the, um, I don't know, you might call it high school coach syndrome. You know, they don't want anybody doing anything with their athletes. They're this kind of a, oh, jack of all trades, master of none type of guy. And in the end, you know, you're still the coach. If you make that call and refer your client to this person that helps them and betters them, you know, they're going to appreciate you for sending them out there, more so even than the person that worked on them. Um, and I think that's what that's what coaches need to understand. I mean, I've seen it time and time again. You know, a great strength coach trying to refer or tr- trying to give horrible diet advice because they think you know that's their realm. That's my job. I got to do everything. And it's just when you refer out, Lonnie, I'd, I'd like to touch, have you touch on it, kind of from your your end. Um, sure. As a dietitian, as a professor, even. Uh, well, I can tell you, I mean, much like Gray, I'm coming at it from two perspectives, you know, because uh, you know, on one side, going all the way through school and exercise physiology, um, I realized that making referrals can be very tough because uh, Gray was mentioning healthcare professionals sort of separately from fitness professionals, and there's a reason for that, and part of it is licensure. And one of the tough things about exercise is that it's often not licensed, unlike physical therapy or dietetics. You know, it's not licensed. And so in sort of, you know, legitimate healthcare type settings, it's very tough sometimes to make a referral. Uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, you could just make the referral straight to the physical therapist or a licensed athletic trainer. But I mean, you think about the, the tens of thousands of, you know, competent exercise physiologists out there or even strength coaches. Um, it becomes kind of tough to make that sort of referral. When I was working at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, before I, I was actually licensed in nutrition, there were times where I felt like a patient or a customer because I didn't have a license yet, you know? And I, I, that's, I think at some point we need to get over ourselves a little, but I can also appreciate what you're saying, Phil, which is we have these scopes of practice and nobody can be an expert in everything. I mean, so, you know, there's a, 
there's a lot to consider there. There's legalities and literally that licensure stuff is state by state. So, you know, living out west there, there's much less regulation sometimes than there is in Ohio where, you know, you're talking about a coach giving nutrition advice. Coach crosses a line and gives prescriptive nutrition advice in Ohio. That's a misdemeanor crime. So, you know, it depends on what state you're in and that kind of stuff. And again, I'm not saying this is not, this is always the right thing, you know, for these kinds of discrepancies, but I see a lot of overlapping scopes of practice now, whether it's between nutrition and dietetics and exercise phys or what have you, even physical therapy and exercise physiology. Uh, and it, it just becomes very tough because without licenses on the, on the pure medical side, on the healthcare side, it's hard to make a referral to someone who doesn't have a license sometimes. Uh, you know, so that's kind of kind of where I'm at. I agree with uh, actually when John Berardi was on a couple of weeks ago that, you know, again, let's get over ourselves just a little bit because at the very least, regardless, even if you have very strict licensure laws like like Ohio does, you, um, you know, I think you're doing the public a disservice by not letting anybody discuss nutrition in any way except for the registered dietitian because – I'm much more of a fan of interdisciplinary types of healthcare teams, you know, or fitness related teams. And when it comes to stuff like obesity or diabetes, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, all these kinds of chronic diseases, which by the way, seven out of 10 family practitioner visits, you know, to a physician are for chronic diseases that they don't necessarily have time to work on. Um, you know, we've got to sort of get together and coordinate in some way. So that's that's where I'm coming from. And I think at the very least, we should be able to do some preliminary triage in nutrition, uh, you know, whether or not you're licensed. Uh, and it, it'd be the same thing with, you know, a nutritionist prescribing exercise. I've got some issues with that, right? I mean, I've seen situations in hospitals where, Somebody needs to lose weight, and they send them to the nutritionist, and you know you've got the registered dietitian doing all of the sort of weight management and exercise stuff. And even with a certificate in weight management or or sports dietetics, it's still I would argue not necessarily the equivalent to you know being a, a certified strength coach or having a master's degree in exercise physiology. So you know there's a lot of issues there about how you make referrals and. I think we need to have respect for each other enough to make those referrals and realize that even with a certificate within our field, man, you know, that's not necessarily the equivalent of going to, you know, university for four or six years or more and, you know, specializing in something. So anyway, that's my take. I think you make one very, very good point. Um, those people who have a credential in nutrition uh, very often – have been training in uh, pathology. You know, um, their their skill set doesn't necessarily give them the ability to optimize nutrition. It's basically dealing with a very, very dysfunctional situation. And that's where I will come to the defense of exercise professionals. I, mm -hmm. you know, God forbid you walk into one of my physical therapy workshops and say, somebody show me proper deadlifting technique. Oh, my God, these are physical therapists. Uh, probably got twice the biomechanical background of a strength coach, and yet they cannot orient their own body or help somebody else get into a safe deadlifting position. So my point is when there's a nutritional issue that's causing a health issue, it becomes medical. But don't assume for a minute that somebody with a medical background in nutrition knows how to optimize your, your, your nutrition. I think uh, as, as soon as a health risk issue is taken off the table, Sometimes the best advice comes from people who aren't practicing with the USDA food pyramid, if you know what I mean. And 
the the thing with with exercise if if you go through a movement screen and you don't have pain and you don't have risk factors associated with exercise many times even if you do have movement dysfunction an exercise professional can help you probably more efficiently and effectively than a medical professional because we've been trained basically to do no harm and to basically identify disease process and dysfunction that usually produces pain. If you don't have pain, you just basically can't touch your toes, I'm not saying you need to see a physical therapist or a chiropractor. I'm saying if you can't touch your toes because you're in pain or it's associated with pain, that then became a health issue. So I think a lot of times when we're talking about optimizing our exercise program, a lot of times it, it is better to go to the fitness professional. We draw the line at pain associated with movement when we're trying to say, should you seek corrective exercise with a medical professional or fitness professional or strength conditioning professional? I think same way with nutrition. If you have major health concerns and risk factors, we got to, first of all, make sure you're healthy. After that, if you're just optimizing your nutrition, there's a good chance you won't get the most op- optimal cutting-edge information from somebody stuck in a hospital. So, um yeah, I think I think there are people at the American Dietetic Association who, who, who would debate that probably with you. I'm not really, but again, I think it, you know, like you or Phil or or Rob, any of us here, the idea is you know we have backgrounds in strength and we have we have sort of dual backgrounds, and I think that, like you're saying, Gray, that that provides a huge amount of perspective here, you know, where you can start to understand the nuances of, like you said, you know, maybe a power lifter or a bodybuilder or whatever it might be and what they're after. Because I agree with you that even if you get someone with, a, let's say you get a registered dietitian who has a weight management or a sports dietetic certificate, I still don't think I'm necessarily going to go to that person to get down to 3% body fat and compete in a bodybuilding show. I think I want to talk to some competitors too, you know? So yeah, point definitely taken. And I'll tell you what, one, one point too, when you mentioned pain and, you know, as a sort of a line in the sand and everything, uh, I'm, right now it's funny because it's funny that Phil, you were bringing this up in this whole topic because I'm teaching a class called advanced fitness, uh, assessment and, and programming. And one of the things, well, let me just run down the list because just in case readers aren't familiar, what is it that exercise physiologists generally do is they are looking for limitations. They're looking for strengths and weaknesses and they're, they are well adept at identifying different categories, you know, different components of physical fitness. So they'll do cardiorespiratory endurance. They'll do muscular and, uh, endurance and strength. Even, you know, bone strength can sometimes be part of that. Body composition, right? Not as body weight, flexibility and balance. Those are the things that an exercise professional who gets a degree in, you know, the modern world, they are competent at doing those things. They don't diagnose, you know, and if there is something pathological, um, you know, they work with a physician or, you know, they make that referral. So just to kind of give everybody some perspective on, you know, where the exercise physiologist lies versus, you know, some of these other professions. Yeah. And it, you know what? Let's face it. It's, 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 it's sort of Buddhist in a way, isn't it? With interconnectedness. I mean, you can't, you're, you can't look at these things from a single perspective because even though, for example, the ACSM or ASEP, they've got these big, uh, campaigns about how exercise is medicine. And I believe it is in a lot of ways. I mean, it's hugely corrective for things like, you know, insulin resistance and things like that. But 
I mean, these are interconnected problems. And when you try to treat them just from a, a nutrition and dietetics perspective or just from an exercise perspective, you often fail. Look at the obesity epidemic. Fail. So we've got to sort of, again, try to get over ourselves a little and create some kind of interdisciplinary respect so we can better address these problems. Because I'm telling you, and I, I know Gray's probably seen similar things. You go to a conference or, you know, a workshop or something, and sometimes the, what the dietetics people are saying, I'm like, well, exercise physiologists know that. Don't you ever talk to them? You know, I was at a, at a meeting in Chicago two years ago, and there was this big discussion about how do we turn on protein synthesis? You know, we're feeding them high-quality protein, and that's not enough. They're just breaking it down and urinating away the nitrogen and, you know, maybe anabolic hormones. How can we possibly turn on protein synthesis? And, I'm, you know, there's like 300 people in the room. And I, I raised my hand. I'm like, you know, resistance training? <laughs> you know? I mean – so, you know, sometimes the, the lack of, of, of crosstalk, I think, can be kind of disturbing, and, and we do need some kind of paradigm shift away from this mine, 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 back and forth, you know, like tug of war. So. No, and I think that's, I mean, there's a reason why. Referring out, to me, is not a an excuse for ignorance. You know, there's a reason why I read Gray's stuff. There's a reason why I go listen to Lonnie talk. And, you know, that gives me the background and the base fundamentals to know then when I need to refer out, you know, and I mean, there's a reason all of us and all the best strength coaches and, and whatever field you're in, whatever part of this field you're in, I mean, there's a reason we all go and learn from each other, you know, and it's, it's part of that is to know when we need to refer out and just to have that base knowledge. Yeah, it's a judgment call at some point, isn't it? You know, that's what Gray was saying. I mean, you know, you're in the spotlight, buddy. Make the call. You know, you've got to if, – if if you think the risks outweigh the benefits of you trying to handle something on sort of a preliminary, you know, triage level yourself, then, man, you know, make make that referral. Even within exercise or within nutrition, there's so many specialties. You know what I mean? I mean, think about Olympic lifting. I'm not USAW. You know, I, I, I'm not an expert in Olympic lifting. I, if, if somebody came to me and wanted to work with me, I'd probably refer them to, you know, to you and Charles, Phil. You know, I mean, people who are both competing in that area and have, you know, a formal background in it. So, yeah, there's, there's so many subspecialties. We cannot all be experts in frickin' everything. Well, one other, one other good thing, if, if, if you're a strength coach and you're working with an athlete and they're having lots of problems, the, the, if, if you really like your athlete and you want the best for them, if you screw them up, uh, your malpractice probably won't get them as nice a car as my malpractice will. <laughs> Bottom line is, if they're going to get screwed up, they may as well get a Bentley for it. So uh, carrying, <laughs> carrying the medical <laughs> credential is simply simply does that. And the other thing is, I, I honestly think that as, as Western professionals, as Western practitioners of the different arts that we practice, we have been fed this in our academic uh, education is, is the fact that we prize reductionist science so much that we forget that the counterpoint to analysis is synthesis. And that's why some of my favorite entities in coaching are the coaches that have already broken it down and already reassembled it. And, and John Wooden used to run his basketball uh, uh, 
practice so that each of his players would go from skill station to skill station in such a compressed amount of time that they would have to perform their skill under fatigue. And John Wooden didn't have the benefit of a strength coach. So he basically rose to the occasion and said, I don't just need shooting skills and dribbling skills. I need them under stress, load, and fatigue. So he created a conditioning session and a skill acquisition session in the same allotted time. And so I think right now when we go back and look at the way a, a great martial artist runs his class or the way a, a, a classically trained lifter may do certain things, they might not even be able to tell you why they're doing them. And we figure since they can't break them down, there's no inherent value there. I think it's, I think it's huge. Do you know how many times we see somebody's explosive movement screwed up in weight training and say, you know, let's take it back to the deadlift? Whereas we're finding out these kids are doing explosive movements, they're trying to run in fifth gear and they don't have a first gear. But the classic old school coach would say, if you can't bend over and pick it up, don't move it fast. And so, you know, there's, there's an inherent synthesis that I think these new systems force us to do. And in one of the newest presentations, I said, you know, the movement screen is simply a left brain tool that forces a right brain solution. It makes you consider motor learning the central nervous system and movement patterns as part of the paradigm because in physical therapy we have this little term when i find a inflexibility or a weakness i call that an impairment i can find a weak quadricep in you and if i return your quadricep to normal strength and you still can't lunge i don't know what the hell to do i just resolved your impairment but your movement didn't return ah there must be something more to movement than just your quadriceps strength. So my whole point is a lot of people are out there knocking down those little impairments, fixing those little imperfections. But when they go back and do a movement appraisal, the person's not moving any better. And so that's, that's, that's a, a, a thing I almost heard you saying too, is we're, we're breaking the body up into these subspecialties, but go ahead. You can make every subspecialty in somebody perfect and they can still have dysfunction and so at some point we gotta shop the synthesis. So Yeah. I you know I what I think what I think what you're sort of proposing here is really interesting because the usual physical fitness component, the part of a fitness assessment, the closest parts of that to what you're talking about would I think would probably be flexibility and balance. But you're you're sort of you're sort of a- adding this you're adding this sixth category to what com- prizes physical fitness and it's a it's a synthetic type instead of a reductionist type and i i I can honestly see you know there's probably room for that now watch for i mean like there's some great textbooks on this i mean we had john mike on last week he's a doc student at university of new mexico that's where vivian hayward is and she she's actually has a textbook it's advanced fitness assessment and prescription and uh that's actually the book i chose for my class because it's really great at sort of laying down you know, some of these components, but I can see books like that eventually adding to their tables, you know, here's a category for the functional movement screen, because I think there's face validity there, right? I mean, one of the things I immediately start thinking about is I do get reductionist. I admit, I start thinking, well, what's the test retest reliability on, on this screen? Or, you know, this is validated against what criterion? And I think those are fair things for people to, to think about, but we also have to consider that, you know, there may be some face validity there that, you know, like you're saying, Graham, that just because you have this or that uh, strength or, you know, a, a weakness that's that's not showing up or whatever it is, if you can't actually perform the movement pattern properly, 
Well, you know, I, I suppose somebody might argue, well, then that's more of a sports-related fitness instead of pure physical fitness. But I don't know. I think it's debatable that you could just add that to the physical fitness tables, you know? Well, well the funny thing that we arrived at when I'm, I'm working with my co-authors in the book is, you know, we almost haven't looked at movement as a behavior. We can have two people with the exact same physical measurements perform differently, not necessarily in a sports skill, but even in what we call a fundamental movement skill, like single leg stance or deep squatting or backward bending or something like that. So when we look at these fundamental movement patterns, we realize that some people have all the parts and they're not putting together, and some people actually put together pretty good movement patterns, yet they have imperfections all over the place. So there's this, there's this qualitative, quantitative balance that we've got to do, and all the movement screen simply does is says, you know, if, if we had a qualitative component to all those other movement quantities that we're appraising, this gives us that little placeholder for that. And the funny thing is, when I look at the three number one risk factors for if you're going to get an injury, number one is have you had a previous injury? Now, the funny thing about that is that doesn't say much for the rehabilitation profession. That means either we let you go when you were pain-free, but we did not restore function, or it means that even though you were moving fine, something fundamentally changed in you after the injury, and I think both things are probably present. The next two highest risk factors for if you're going to get an injury are asymmetry, and motor control, and motor control is just a fancy word for stability, but it embodies both the flexibility and balance that you just said. So how many times did you get an injury, did you rehabilitate the injury, but since you didn't have a baseline standard for asymmetry and motor control, you assumed that you had a full return to function when really it's not those performance measures that, that predict injury. They predict performance. They predict your success in an exercise platform, but when we're looking at, at uh, you know, how durable you are, those little tests about how you move with and behave within your own movement dimensions forecast a lot. We had 934 guys go through Marine Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia, and over a year we movement screened them, and then we let the military beat the hell out of them. And out of 21 points on the movement screen, there is a definitive line at about 14 that if you score below that simply on your own movement patterns, you're two and a half times to three times more likely to drop out for physical reasons. And, you know, we've looked at every other component we could with fitness and hadn't had that strong a predictor on who's going to drop out. We do have strong predictors on performance, but the first, first line of defense for me is to do no harm and prevent injuries because I simply think that whether I'm working with an NFL team or a SEAL team, if you get injured doing what you're paid to do, then that's an occupational hazard. But if you get injured training to do what you're supposed to do, that's just unacceptable. I, I can't have a, a, a SEAL getting injured because he doesn't know how to mess with a kettlebell or an NFL player, you know, throwing out a shoulder in the weight room. These, these are things we should predict, and what we're finding is, about a third of the people that are showing up saying, teach me an overhead snatch, have three things they need to do for you before you even say you've earned the right to do that. And, and it didn't used to be that way. We didn't used to move this poorly. Since 1965, we've been lowering standards to get enough people in the U.S. military. So we've been lowering standards, 
and then we all of a sudden surprised that we got more injuries. So, hey, I like what you said about you know having this sort of data set and being able to you know quantifiably predict things, right? So, I got a question for you, Gray. Do you have? Are you building? A database for the functional movement screen. For example, if if I do a test on body comp on somebody or flexibility, whatever, uh, there are national norms that I can compare that to, right? Are are you setting up that kind of stuff, or do you have plans to set up that kind of stuff? Because it seems to me like that would be a huge step toward really getting broad acceptance. Is once you get sort of national norms on this stuff. Yes, and uh, we we've got we've set them up. Now I will uh, temper it with this. We've got uh, so much data from the fire service, the U.S. military, and the NFL that there's, there's not really much of a question for most of the researchers that have looked at this anymore. They do realize that that fundamental movement ability plays a, plays a factor in what we call durability. It's just, it, it seems to be a biomarker. The problem is when people ask me that same question about high school athletics and 60-year-old ladies who are 30 pounds overweight, we haven't seen people be as enthusiastic about collecting the movement information so we don't have as big a database. But where the structure's there, where the intake is standardized, we do have uh, unbelievable indicators. And the funny thing is, it doesn't really matter who the population is, whether it's uh, a certain group of personal fitness or whether it's military people, we see a 20% fail rate of movement screens due to pain. That means these people are showing up, having passed a medical physical saying, I want you to program the crap out of me, exercise me, and yet one of the movement patterns on the movement screen actually invokes pain, and yet none of those movement patterns exceed AMA goniometric measurements for what are considered normal joint range of motion. So, they're asking a fitness solution for a medical problem. We got a 20% fail rate. That's the number one statistic. You've got, you know, without ever baselining uh, risk, 20% of the people asking you to train them haven't told you the complete truth, and maybe they don't even know it because they've learned to avoid certain positions that might be actually part of the exercise regime you're going to put them on. The other thing is the movement screen captures that stat that we've had for about 10 years, which is it captures significant deficiencies in what we call body dimensional motor control, meaning I'm checking you against your own dimensions. You're not lunging my inseam. You're lunging your inseam. You're not, you know, uh, squatting uh, with anybody else's femur. You're squatting your femur. You're not stepping over an eight-inch step. You're stepping over your own tibial height. So it forces you to really show us in a reliable manner you've got some serious asymmetries or you've got a few motor control issues. And, and that is consistent with the research right now. But to answer your question, uh, we're going to launch our new site in about eight weeks, and you're going to see some, some pretty good database stuff uh, as far as, it, you know, it's just one more variable in information. But what we found is the fitness information we collect is determinant if the movement screen is above a certain level. And if the movement screen is below a certain level, the fitness information doesn't seem to be protective in nature. It means no matter how fit you are on a certain load, you're still going to probably be in a higher risk category. Right. You know, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, if you could, if you could somehow open up your data set to, you know, 
profs who can break it down to, you know, whatever, you know, if there's a single number, for example, break it down into quartiles, you know, the, the least fit quartile versus the most fit, or then you can look, start, look for correlations between different things in the low fit group versus the high fit group. You know, maybe they, maybe they differ in different ways. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the nerd in me is kicking in here, but. If it, no, no, let me tell you something. This is, this is so cool because you're getting ready to approach something that I want to make sure the listeners know. A good movement screen is not insurance. A bad movement screen is a risk factor. Now, here's what I mean by that. Once you can screen above an acceptable level, a perfect score on a pattern is three. An acceptable score is two. A deficiency is a one. And if you have pain with the pattern, no matter how good you do, that's a zero. We don't really have a lot of data suggesting that perfect movement is better than average movement. We just can't have people below average movement. So when we have people with a really great movement screen, I mean, they got good movement patterns. It injured people's like, wait a minute. You know, I thought the movement screen predicted risk. It does, but it doesn't offer insurance on the other end because the minute you move well, your fitness parameters do come into play. Your reaction time, your fatigability, your strength, your power production, all these things are probably now risk factors where when you don't move well at all, most of your energy expenditure is being invested in compensation, substitution, uh, inappropriate form, and protecting your own uh, joints. So, you know, we don't want people to think that a perfect movement screen is an insurance policy, but a deficient movement screen cannot probably be fixed by exercising more. You've got to pretty much reacquisition that pattern or figure out why it's deficient and basically it's one of two answers you got a mobility problem or a stability problem right you know just for the reader's sake l- let me bring up two two key points just because i was just talking about this in class but when when we talk about uh, screens like this there are two basic principles one is sensitivity and that's basically identifying a condition when it, when it's there and that's usually balanced with specificity which is you know you don't want a false positive with something and that's exactly the kind of thing that the database uh, a big database can provide over time you know again it's just one more way to dig into things and get some get some numbers on all of it but it's really cool to be able to see things that you know are are sensitive enough to pick up a disease condition or you know a problem but you know they're not so sensitive that they start finding faults when there is none you know so just some things to consider physicians and drug companies were smart enough to treat people that feel fine they started looking for the risk factors in your blood numbers, and now all of a sudden you can walk in for a physical and feel fine. Next thing you know, you're on, you know, hypertensive medication. You're on, uh, you know, medication to, you know, change up your cholesterol measures and stuff like that. But it's basically because they did their homework on risk factors. And so, you know, if, as, as musculoskeletal people, whether we're in fitness or rehabilitation, if we can effectively uh, define risk factors, uh, who knows? Uh, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We just haven't done enough homework, and that's why we're pushing right now um, to, to get a lot of this information out because I honestly think that the trainer on the floor and the coach on the floor needs to have red jerseys on those people who are at risk because you don't know who they are. They look fit. They're shredded up. Some of them have a great uh, metabolic rate, and, and, and they're lean as hell, and they look great, and all of a sudden, boom they're injured, 
and you know we had we would have had four or five indicators suggesting that, but you know simply looking at their physicality uh, tells us a lot about their performance, but sometimes doesn't suggest their durability, and that's been uh, a really profound thing working with some of the NFL strength coaches. There's like their their numbers are are pretty good. We got two guys that perform the same, but sure enough, they've got huge different durability measurements, and it and it and it shows that some guys are breaking down just unbelievably quick, even though they're very gifted athletes and have unbelievable power production. Let me make a quick comment here. I, Fortress is being sort of quiet, but I just want to point this out, and I don't have any numbers, but. Fortress, I think, is one of the most durable dudes I have ever met. When I watch the amount of intensity and volume and just, you know, strength brutality that that guy applies to himself on a daily basis, I don't know, we, we got to get him screened or something because I think he's going to be in the 99th percentile. I think Boy, it's a single best. Fortress for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks, Lonnie. I appreciate that. No, I mean, I'd go the other way with me. I mean, I think there's a reason a lot of my injuries I know stem from my past and getting ran over and my hip crushed and this and that. And uh, But, you know, and then it brings up the topic, you know, a problem's not a problem unless there's a solution. Because there is, if there is no solution, it's not a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, but at least then I know by going through the movement screening, I'm coming in and informed. Of hey, yeah. you got a problem. Maybe it's not fixable, but hey, at least I know, you know. And I've come into life, and I've come into strongman and powerlifting, knowing, hey, man, you might get injured, and you're trying to work around this hip that's been taped back together. But you know, at least I know, and it's my choice then. And I think you know, it's it's us as exercise professionals or whatnot to to at least inform our clients and say, hey, you know, here's the deal. You've got this. You know, so it's your right. choice. We can go ahead, and, and you can take this on. You, you've got a big risk, or or you don't. So you know, Phil, I always look at you, and I mean this in the nicest possible way. More like a dragster. You're capable of super high performance, and you blow your engine every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Different kinds of people. Yeah. Yep. Well, great. It's been great. Thanks for coming on again. No, this this was this was fun, and and. Uh, uh, that's what I don't want people to be intimidated, intimidated by this or overcomplicated. It's simply one test. It doesn't to us. It doesn't mean anywhere close to everything. It just happens to be the, the the first thing we do now. It's our first little safety check, and if the movement's there, then we start hammering on all the other stuff we've always wanted to hammer on. And if it's not, we spend about two or three weeks in corrective strategy. It is not my intention to turn the honorable profession of strength conditioning into a bunch of frou-frou rehab with uh, soft, cushy things and light chrome dumbbells. And I'll think <laughs> when, when, they, when they, you know, hear me talking about this, they think we're trying to undermine the efforts of strength conditioning. I'm not. I am trying to honor those efforts. And, and you know, that whole Turkish get-up thing we did was like, you know, if, if you can't do a respectable get-up, that may explain why your snatches and swings look like crap. So, you know, it's it's just simply one more way to say, I want to hit it hard, and I want you to hit it hard. Uh, I just want you to know when you are when you got a red light on your dashboard. That's not something we cover up with ibuprofen. That's something we address with two or three weeks of intelligent, informed professionals working together, and we get your ass back going again. We have a technical glitch. 
All right. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.